Okay, let's open a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this day. We pray that you'll bless our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, uh, you know, I always try to think hard about uh, titles and uh, graphics. So I trotted out my uh, canary on life support uh, thing here. The uh, Maybe I should, I don't know if I can zoom in on that or... Um, there you go. See him? There he is. And he's got his little goldfish IV bag. And so anyway, so the dots are connecting. And um, they, they are. Um, it, it's very difficult to uh, do things. You know, we talk about, as I said each week, I say the convergence of everything, the acceleration, the logistics, the understanding. And I told uh, one of our video people, before I started today, I think I told the whole group back there, who, by the way, they do a great job uh, getting all these graphics running. This is much more complicated than you think. Uh, I know people that try to do live streams on their own, and it's very difficult because you're trying to monitor everything, and some people have just given up and gone to recording. So I still try to do them when I can, but I mentioned to them back there this morning when I was... Uh, that you know this this week's update might not be as upbeat as usual, <laughs> um, because it's it's pretty heavy uh, stuff going on out there on a lot of different levels, and they're all sort of inter they're not sort of they're all very very interconnected so interconnected. So this is a verse we use each week about from Daniel chapter twelve that when as we get closer to the end we're going to have a better understanding of exactly how these things are working out. I don't know if I mentioned it. I do a number, number of podcasts and interviews <coughs> with people, and I sometimes lose track what I've said here, what I've said there, and because it just sort of goes into this big jumbled mess in my head. So if I repeat myself, that's okay, because I don't expect you to remember everything that I talk about, because I don't even remember uh, from week to week. So uh, you're, you're uh, given a special uh, absolution from, that, from remembering everything that I talk about. Uh, and it's always funny, because I'll get an email from somebody else, you have got to talk about this. Like, yeah, well, it was in last Sunday's update, so I know you didn't watch, or you didn't pay attention, or you forgot. And in each case, you're just, you know, I forgive you. Uh, but I get these emails from people all the time about their views of the end times. I get books, I get papers, I get emails, I get graphics, I get... And I, I don't mind that people send them to me. I can't respond to all of them. That's all that I would do. I belong to some discussion groups on the internet, on social media that discuss eschatology. And I have to tell you, um, there's one, one group in particular that I'm thinking about on Facebook, and I have to tell you, it's depressing. Because there are pre-trip people, there are post-trip people, there are mid-trip people, there are pre-wrath people, there are preterists, there are people that think the 70th week has been fulfilled, there are people that don't think the 70th week has been fulfilled. And all of them say, everybody's nasty to my view. <laughs> so they're all saying everybody's nasty, and I'm trying to look at it objectively, and I think they're all nasty to each other. And it's, it's kind of 
it's concerning. Because if you think like, well, does the Lord really want to come back for us? You know what I mean? The way we're going at this. And so I would just encourage people, because look, I have different views than other people, and I try to get along with them. And there are sometimes when it really becomes a really serious error in theology or doctrine that we have to really deal with. Like someone who might advocate another gospel. That, that's one that's, that's a real deal breaker for me. Uh, so, you know, this is my view of, of how the horses unfold. And I'll put it up and I'll say, you know, the, they start to unfold, but they increase over time. They, they don't finish. And then the next one opens. And then it finishes. That's not how it's going to work. They're going to be all operating at the same time. And then people say, well, they start before the 70th week. They start before the tribulation. They start after the tribulation. They started after Jesus went back to heaven. So we can have that discussion. Uh, certainly there have been wars all the way through, but I just think that this time is pretty unique. So here's, a, here's an article. So I'm going to actually start with sort of a general everything's falling apart or falling into place article that I found in Time Magazine by Ray Dalio, who's with, um, is or was with uh, Vanguard, one of the big hedge funds. He's a multi-billionaire. Uh, they're not as big as BlackRock, but I think between Van- Vanguard and BlackRock, they may control about 25% of the financial assets on the planet, which is means they're pretty powerful. And that's led some people to make this conclusion that, I mean, Apple is the most valuable company in history. Uh, I got an email from a guy that I follow for financial advice, which I never take, but, or I, I never take it at the right time. Uh, and he reminded everybody that 10 years ago, he issued a buy alert on NVIDIA, which was a video chip, mainly in the gaming industry stock. NVIDIA is now up 9,462% since he, which means it's, you know, if you put $1,000 in, you're, you've got in the millions of dollars if you had invested $1,000 and left it there. But who leaves it there, right? Uh, but there's a lot of people who are thinking, I can't say that I disagree with them, that at least some of these tech or the uh, final kingdoms in this 10 kingdom alliance, you know, three are taken over, and so there's really seven left, that some of them might be tech companies because the tech companies have become so big and so valuable. So NVIDIA, they've increased market value um, I, I mean, just in the last year, like 10 times from like $100 billion to a trillion dollars. And I played the clip of the guy, the CEO, who's been with them since the beginning. And he, and I think it's kind of good because he sort of has been able to direct them with his philosophy all the way through. But I saw a video of him um, using AI while he was speaking, and it, he would say something, then it would translate it into the, using his voice with like a Korean accent or a Japanese accent saying the same words, and you could not tell that it was not him speaking those words. 
what does that mean when we get up to the election in this next year? There are going to be deep fakes out there like you've never seen before. They're already starting to appear. There was a deep fake video put up of Trump being arrested and led away in handcuffs. Those are going to be all over the place. And believe me that uh, there's people on both sides of this election that's coming up here in the United States and elections elsewhere that are going to uh, going to use the technology to their advantage. So what, what we're at is we're at risk of living in a world where it's going to be very, very difficult to understand the truth. Um, so here's Ray Dalio writing in Time Magazine, June 26, why the world is on the brink of great disorder. The world order is changing in profound ways that will reshape the globe in the coming years. He says this, I'm a global macro investor who's been betting on what's going to happen for over 50 years. I've been through all sorts of events and cycles in all sorts of places over a long time, which led me <coughs> to study how these events and cycles work. In the process, I learned that I needed to study history to understand what's going on and what's going to happen. And I would add, Ray, give me a call. We can talk about adding Bible prophecy to that mix. I'm sure he'll, I'm sure he'll be on the phone before I'm done here. Early in my career, I had a couple painful mistakes. The first time that happened was on August 15, 1971, when I was clerking on the floor <coughs> excuse me, of the New York Stock Exchange, and the U.S. defaulted on its debt promise to allow people to turn in their paper dollars for gold. I thought this was a big crisis that would send stock prices down, but they went up a lot. I didn't understand why, because I'd never experienced a big currency devaluation before. Some people are going, because there's a talk like, what's going to happen to the U.S. dollar? And the U.S. dollar seems to still be fairly strong. I think it's the basis, I think all world, of all the world currencies, the United States dollar is about 58% of the total. And people, right now, we're sort of in this transition phase where maybe the dollar is no going, not going to be the reserve currency any longer. So what do you do? What do you buy gold? Do you get rid of dollars? And it's very difficult because some people, some economists that I've heard and read say, well, the dollar will fail upward. In other words, the dollar is going to go up in value, but it's going to collapse, which just doesn't seem to compute to a lot of us. And in some parts of the country, real estate is collapsing, falling apart. Commercial real estate is falling apart. Talking to some commercial bankers over the last couple of weeks, there's big concern about whether Tuttle, Tuttle Mall is probably finished over in Dublin. Uh, they've lost, I think they may have one anchor left. I don't know. I haven't been there. I used to live close to there. I'd, and there was a restaurant at the entrance, so I would go over there and get hamburgers. But that's, other than that, I hadn't been in that mall for probably 15 years. And the other one they're concerned about is Polaris which just doesn't seem to compute, but how many of you really go there? You know, I go there to Apple uh, store, uh, you know, when my MacBook needs a little a TLC and repair, although this week I took it, I, my other MacBook is in the 
in the MacBook Hospital over at Easton right now, getting fixed up. But um, it can change quickly. I mean, do you, every, how many of you remember in Columbus City Center Mall? I you, sat in my office at the Huntington Center back in the late 80s and watched that thing being built. And by, what did it last, 20 years maybe? The death knell of a mall or strip center is usually when they bring in the payday loans thing. When, so when they start opening payday loans in a shopping mall, you know it's the end is near. That's a, sort of a sign of the apocalypse. But I know a lot of people, they won't go to Polaris because the uh, kids running around and everything. So Dalio says this, so here's some of the things. Uh, I saw three big things happening that hadn't happened in my lifetime, but happened in the 1930-45 period. The largest amounts at first, the largest amounts of debts, the fastest rates of debt growth, and the greatest amounts of central bank printing of money and buying debts since 1930 to 1945. Two, the biggest gaps in wealth, income, and values, and the greatest amounts of populism since the 1930 to 1945 period. And three, the greatest international great powers conflict, most importantly, between the U.S. and China since 1930 to 1945. And then he says, I also saw two other big forces. They are acts of nature, droughts, floods, pandemics, including climate change, which I disagree with him on, but um, we've always lived with climate change. You can go north of here a couple hours and you can see evidence of the glaciers that were a mile thick that used to be up there that carved grooves in the bedrock and some, and some of the rocks up there. And you can see it. And they, they disappeared before the industrial age, before anybody was running cars on oil or electricity or anything like that. And then the other one, he says, learning leading to inventions of technologies that typically produced evolutionary advances in productivity and living standards. The first and second industrial revolution and computing AI revolution, which the people at the World Economic Forum refer to as the, um, the fourth industrial revolution. And some people say, is it the Fourth Reich? That's one theory of at least one Bible prophecy teacher. I can't say that I disagree with it because these guys are everywhere. So look, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to, uh, first I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I got coming up for my own speaking and that type of thing, uh, in case you want to catch those. I did a, and then we'll do, we'll sort of do Middle East, and Temple Mount, start with that, because I usually don't get to that. Other things that are happening in the Middle East right now, uh, some big roundup in Janine this week by the Israeli Defense Forces. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? Some of the alliances that are forming in that region, uh, the turmoil that's over there, turmoil in Europe, and then we'll talk a little bit about technology. And we'll be done in like 20 minutes on each of the 18 topics that I have. <laughs> uh, it's really, the hardest part is doing this. But we live at this very unique time. Something is going on, and I think even the secular world recognizes it. Political turmoil everywhere, parallels in many countries. You can see what's happening in Brazil, the U.S., and Israel about how the justice system has been weaponized against people that they don't like. 
anarchy, protest, where people aren't charged, but people who, say, pray outside an abortion clinic, are threatened with 10 years in federal prison. And they keep rounding them up, and then they bring them into Congress to testify, and they say, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. We would never do that. Well, you're doing it. We see it. We know people that have been arrested. Well, we're not, we're not doing anything wrong. And the worst guy is that Mayorkas guy, the Department of Homeland Security guy. What an unbelievable liar that guy is. It's, it's very hard. I, I think if I was sitting there asking questions, I would be tempted to just reach over you know, and give him a little smack every now and then, which wouldn't solve anything, but it would sort of get rid of it. So let's look at some of these things that are going on. So now, the situation in Israel is a bit... Um, it's, it's, everybody's concerned that's involved in security analysis. From the center-left groups to the center groups to the center-right groups, everybody's concerned about it. So here's uh, one of my favorite websites, uh, israel-alma.org. Highly recommend that you bookmark it and go there. Now, one of the things, the articles that they've talked about recently is, will Hezbollah's tents uh, be cause a broad military conflict. So in the Mount Dove area, you can see the little square up here in the center below the, the titles of the slide <coughs> is Mount Dove. It's, it's, a, it's a tall, it's a mountainous area along the Lebanon border. Uh, there is, um, I like this map that I have was able to find. It's sort of a exaggerated three-dimensional view of what the the elevations are in Israel and you get a picture so way up at the north the really high one is Mount Hermon and then those those there's a ridge of mountains along the Lebanon Israel border all the way over to the ocean and Pam and I when we were there a few years back we drove that um, and enjoyed most of it, except I've, somebody kept asking me, do you have enough gas? And I said, yeah, I've got enough gas. It's like 20 miles, okay? I, know this, I don't know this car, but I know gas, you know. I've only run out a few times. And uh, so we were right along the Lebanon-Israel border. Uh, interesting area. Very, reminds you much, very much of California. Um, coastal mountains. So up in that region... North of the Sea of Galilee, which is right here, um, you can. Um, so, in this region is this Mount Dove that they're talking about, and so Hezbollah has erected some tents there. And so, the question is, what what are they going to do about it? And the question that all, the Alma Israel website ask is, will the tent, Hezbollah tents in the border area at Mount Dove cause a wide military conflict with Israel? About three weeks ago, Hezbollah set up a tent in what is considered Israeli territory in the border area. Hezbollah later set up a second tent. The Lebanese army and the, unit, uh, the UN forces do not enforce Resolution 1701, which says you're not allowed to build anything there, or put anything up. So Hezbollah did this. And Part of what you see going on in the Middle East all the time 
is Hezbollah, which is funded by Iran. There's this constant state of provocation because they're testing how Israel will respond. They're testing how far they can go, how much, what can they get away with. And at some point, so the question is, is something going to break out and happen? What's And everybody knows there is a conflict coming, but nobody knows exactly what the trigger is going to be. So up in Syria, um, Iran is putting together in, in, in the Dar al-Zor region, which is under the control of U.S. and its allies in northeast Syria. And there's some oil there. It's not a huge amount, but it's, it, you know, it is money that comes in. And I'm not sure who it goes to, but it probably goes to the rebel groups that are allied with the U.S. So Iran has now set a goal to take that region over and exercise its hegemonic rule over that particular region. There's been a softening of attitudes throughout the Arab League to Bashar al-Assad. He's now being accepted back into the Arab League. Even though the situation in Syria has not resolved itself, other than a large part of the country has been destroyed, people have been forced out of the country, we remember back in 2015, 2016, and there was a NATO general, uh, the head of NATO at the time, commander of NATO at the time was a guy named Breedlove. He came to Congress and testified, and he goes, look, they're bombing Sunni areas in Syria, meaning Russia and Syria are bombing them. He says they have, it has no strategic value to the war that's going on there. It appears that they're trying to get them on the road. And so there's this very, the way the society is structured, it's tribal and religious. So the government of Syria is Alawite, which is a branch, a sub-branch of Shia Islam, which is what is predominant in Iran. Although there are significant areas of Shia Islam in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, which are ruled by Sunni Islam rulers. Mecca and Medina are under the control of Sunni Islamic rulers. Turkey is largely Sunni. But there, so you, again, you have this tribal conflict and the religious sect conflict that goes on all the time. But it appears that there was a concerted effort to get rid of the Sunni population in Syria, to get them out of there. The other thing they did, for example, down in the south in Dara, which is in southern Syria along the Jordan Jordanian border, about 30 minutes west of east of the uh, Sea of Galilee, it's where the Syrian civil war started. And they took those people and they moved them to another Sunni area in the far north that's under the control of now under the control of Turkey, or at least Turkey's trying to exercise control. It's very complicated. And that's similar to what they did back in Babylonian times. They took Israel and they took them from Is Israel and they moved them to Babylon. Because people kind of lose their bearings on how they're going to organize and do things. So those ancient methods of warfare are still being used. And we'll see in a minute, we're, we're going to talk about what's going on in Europe right now, that those immigrants that came in in the millions 
from the Middle East and settled all across Europe, there's now a big problem. France is, seems to be literally falling apart. There's like a revolution, and now it's spreading to Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland. I've even heard reports of some rioting going on in Germany. Because they're not integrated. They've not integrated into the culture. They have a different view of things. And there's an Islamic doctrine about jihad by immigration. And it seems like the people in Europe went along with it. And it's destabilizing things. Central Asia is becoming a problem. And it's, a, it's becoming a bit of a flashpoint between China and Russia as if we didn't have enough problems already in the world. This is a, a flag that was found in southern Lebanon. And you can see it has Iran and Syria, um, Russia, and Hezbollah in the center. And it kind of shows that alliance. Uh, Russia's been very active. And the, the main force that Russia's used in Syria has been, other than its air force at the air force bases and naval at the naval base, throughout the rest of Syria, they've been using the Wagner Group. Now the Wagner Group, the question is, is it still in existence or not? I'll try to talk a little bit about that. By the way, so here's a light note. Um, I saw a picture of Yasser Arafat's daughter today. She doesn't speak Arabic, but she's now the heir to the Arafat fortune. And he was not just some little poor guy. He skimmed a little bit of money off of the aid that came to the Palestinians. And some estimate that his fortune when he died was, which is getting close to 20 years ago now, was over a billion dollars. Poor, poor Yasser. Uh, in fact, I saw this man, and so it just says, uh, where is the capital of Palestine? Uh, it's in a Swiss bank. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty clever. So back anyway to this thing. So there's a lot of analysis about what happens if something happens in northern Israel. Who all is going to get involved? What are the casualties going to look like? Even if it's a limited... Um, engagement, there's going to be thousands of people killed. 2,000 civilians, 3,000 Hezbollah operatives, uh, 12,000 Hezbollah operatives wounded, and they have about 50 to 100,000. Uh, in Israel, there would be 100, about 120 destruction zones of high-rise buildings. And we can see what a missile can do. You see pictures coming out of out of Ukraine, a, a missile that hits an apartment building in leave this week killed a number of people and pretty much we have a pretty big building and it took out the top few floors. It just destroyed the building. And 600-800 IDF soldiers, 200 to 250 civilians, and I've also seen estimates that it could be 20,000 civilians that are killed. Now in a country of 9 million people, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, look what happened in the United States when we had, what, 3,000 killed on 9-11 out of a population of over 300 million? It was a bit disruptive, was it not? Yeah. 
So here's, uh, this is a great graphic that Alma put up about the different Israeli defenses, David's Sling, Arrow 3, David's Sling, Patriot, Iron Dome. But it, it, it's very good and accurate in that it shows the limited range that these defensive missiles have. So for example, Arrow 3 has a 250 kilometer range. That's about 150 miles from the installation it can protect about 250 miles, 150 miles. Iron Dome, 60, 70 kilometers, that's 42 miles, 44 miles. There's also hopes that Israel's going to develop um, laser technology, and that's, that's developing, but it's not going to be, it, it's at least a year away, if not more, it's cheap, much, much cheaper to use. An, Aero, an Iron Dome missile costs about $100,000. So, you know, you got to really, you know, I hate to say it, but there's probably somebody at IDF making the decision, well, it's just going to hit that closed falafel stand. Um, and is it worth, save, you know, $100,000 to save a falafel stand? In my estimation, it's not. So I'm not a big fan of falafel, by the way. I... We went to Israel once, and they said, we're going to get free lunch today. It was a falafel. I'm like, where's the McDonald's, you know? <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a lunch. Uh, that's goop in a pita or something. But uh, that's how I view it. So. But my wife loves them, so bless her heart. So this, is, this shows you the problems that they have now. Raphael has come out and said, we're going to develop a new, um, here's a picture of what uh, laser technology might look like. But it's limited. It might go up to a kilometer to a mile away. So you have to have the, place, the thing in place pretty close to where the missile's going, which means you either have to have something very fast and very mobile, or a lot of them, or both. Um, so the... Um, and you can see how things are so close. So, for example, the little hook down here on the coast of Israel is Haifa. And then on the other side of the bay there is uh, Naria, and then the border. And then the one, the peninsula that juts out up there in Lebanon, sort of the top center right, that's Beirut. And so you go from Beirut to Damascus, which is in this picture, that's 50 miles. It's not that far. So. Uh, Raphael is now coming up. They also now have a hypersonic missile. And Iran claims that their hypersonic missiles can go 15 times the speed of sound. I think that's probably a bunch of hype. But even if it was eight times the speed of sound, which is considered to be the base hype, where the thing is something is considered hypersonic, they move very quickly. So something's going at 15 times the speed of sound. That's, um, I don't know what the calculation on that is. What is that, 12,000 miles per hour? It's going to cover 50 miles in a pretty short period of time. Now, Raphael is saying they're developing a weapon system that will be able to shoot down a missile like that. But that's going to take a while. So everything is very volatile. Israel has, or will soon have by 2024, two squadrons of F-35s, which they've taken to... Uh, operational 
capabilities beyond what the United States has designed into our F-35s. They're trying to acquire a third, but they're not going to have that till 2030. They need more refueling tankers to get, they can probably get them to Iran to do bombing, but you also have, you want to get them back, right? <laughs> you don't want them to just be, go on a suicide mission. And they have a few, they have, I think, seven refueling tankers, but they need more. The ones they have are pretty old. We're trying to upgrade our capabilities, so the United States is sort of taking priority on our own stuff. But so Israel may not get new refueling tankers till the late 2020s. Uh, so it's all uh, incredibly dicey situation. So now this week, what happened was there was a, uh, operation, uh, here's a JNS article, about how Israeli Air Force is preparing for a multi-arena arena war. And they've been talking about this for a long time, all the think tanks. This article, the author, a former Israeli Air Force guy, says in any future full-scale regional war, the Israeli Air Force will have to be able to both deal with those threats and tackle Iranian nuclear sites and missile bases thousands of kilometers from Israel all at the same time. It's a problem. And then you have uh, different alliances. For example, here's um, Iran. There's these reports that Iran and Russia have entered into um, agreements to bring in, uh, to develop. Uh, they've actually built a drone factory in Russia, or they're in the process of building a drone factory in Russia. And this drone thing is really changing the face of warfare because they can do drone swarms. You saw that some places in the United States on July 4th celebrations, instead of having fireworks, they said, well, we have uh, conditions are too dry. We can't have fireworks. We would burn down the county. So we'll do a drone you know, a bunch of drones with lights forming things in the sky. And that's great. It's pretty, it's, it's interesting, but it also understand that has a military application. If they can do that just to make a picture in the sky, they can do that to do a drone swarm. And then that sort of brings into play the, the, the passage in Ezekiel 38 about it comes up like a cloud against the land. Is that, was it talking about drones? I don't know. Seems like the more we get into this, um, it will be. Russia continues to be a, a major player in this. This is uh, from the Jerusalem Post, Seth Fransman writing. Uh, Putin's call to the Middle East leaders after the rebellion that went through, I'll talk about that in just a moment here, shows that the Middle East is really sort of important to everything. Um, Seth says this, um, Russian President Putin spoke over the last few days with Iranian President Raisi and UA President Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan in the wake of the Wagner Rebellion last weekend. His decision to fund the Middle East leaders illustrates the importance of the region not only just for Russia, but for the world at large. This stands in contrast to policy analyses that propose that the Middle East is no longer of particular interest to the West and that it is shifting away after decades of intense involvement. While this may be true for some U.S.-based think tanks or commentators, 
which no longer see the Middle East as a major area to focus on, reality continues to illustrate why it indeed does matter. And it does. So Russia is still uh, involved in this. This is an article by David Weinberg. He is, this is about a month old now, that um, the UN and everybody, they, they kind of make whatever happens to the Palestinians or the Palestinians do to Israel and then Israel responds, there's a moral equivalency that happens. So this week there was a uh, operation in Janine after about 50 terrorist attacks. Israel went in with the Israeli Defense Force in a pretty focused operation. They went into Janine, into what's known as a refugee camp. It's, a, it's kind of a bad neighborhood. The buildings have been made permanent. They're not tents anymore. And you see them in different places. You, there's one in Nablus. There's one in Janine. I think there might be one down around Jericho and Hebron. And they become hotbeds, though, because they're kind of kept in poor squalor areas like Gaza, highly de densely populated, people lose hope and they turn to terrorism. And they educate their kids to be terrorists. So I don't have the clip uh, teed up. Um, actually, if you give me one second, I think I can put it in here. Um, This is Naftali Bennett on the BBC, who's being interviewed by a BBC reporter about there were eight guys killed in the Janine raid. And there were, I don't know, a hundred or so Palestinians injured. And I use Palestinians in the sense that that's what everybody calls them. Um, they never were really called that until about 60 years ago when Russia sort of put out propaganda to kind of destabilize things and control things. But she's interviewing former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett about, well, these eight that were killed, there were several of them that were under the age of 18. And just, I mean, listen to this um, interview. Well, we're joined now by the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett from Jerusalem. Good evening, and thank you for joining us. Good to be here, gentlemen. First of all, the Israeli military are calling this a military operation, but we know that young people are being killed, four of them under 18. Is that really what the military set out to do, to kill people between the ages of 16 and 18? Quite the contrary. Actually, all 11 uh, people dead there are militants. Um, the fact that there's young uh, terrorists that uh, decide to hold arms is their responsibility. Look, at the end of the day, uh, over the past year or so, we've had over 50 Israelis murdered, uh, in many cases, by terrorists that were sent from Janine camp, armed, trained, and sent to kill and murder Israelis in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and across Israel. And Janine has become an epicenter of terror. So we, unfortunately, uh, had to enter the, this uh, hornet's nest of terror and uh, neutralize the, the terror, otherwise they're going to continue killing us. 
So in fact, all the Palestinians that were uh, killed are terrorists in this case. Terrorists, but children. The Israeli forces are happy to kill children. You know, it's quite remarkable that you'd say that, because they're killing us. Now, if there's a 17-year-old uh, uh, Palestinian that's shooting at your family, Anjana, what, what is he? Under your definition, you are calling them terrorists, the UN are calling them no, terrorists. No, I'm, I'm actually asking you, what would you call a 17-year-old person with a rifle shooting at your family and murdering your own family? How would you define that person? We're not talking about that. The UN That's has exactly defined them as about. children. The UN has defined them as children and we know that four people between the ages of 16 and 18 have been killed in this targeted attack. Let's not forget it's a targeted attack. The Israeli forces yes, are going but, but and looking these are for terrorists. These I, I, I'm missing something. You know, a 17-year-old terrorist can murder civilians. We've had the, there's a fundamental difference between what they're doing, which is explicitly and deliberately targeting civilians and what we're doing, which is targeting terrorists. That's exactly the opposite. We're doing the right thing, they're killing civilians. And the fact that you're creating this moral equivalent, or even worse, uh, I think it's unacceptable. But isn't it language exactly like this and actions exactly like the ones that are being taken that are going to stoke tensions even more? If we're looking for a peaceful solution at any point, surely this what you're doing in Janine, and then the retaliatory attacks that we're seeing in Tel Aviv are not the way forward. Well, you know, um, if there were a town uh, of terror, uh, let's say 50 kilometers from London, and on a daily basis from that town, from that center of terror, there'd be uh, civilians, UK civilians, uh, being killed and murdered on the streets of London, I'm sure you'd send forces there. You know, we, we don't have... Well, anyway, the BBC came out and apologized, sort of like, well, you know, the apology is sort of like, you know, just don't be so sensitive about this when we accuse you of these things. I actually, I have a photo. I know people think, well, you don't really prepare when you do these things, but yeah, I do. <laughs> I... Uh, I do prepare, and the um, it's just that there's so much going on that it's, I try to cut it off, but it's, um, so here's a, here's a picture. Well, I thought I had a picture here, hang on. I had, <laughs> I want to show you that because this is a picture that the Fatah organization put up about its own people and they describe them in detail as to who it was that was killed and they're all identified as martyrs. This is the picture. And so the BBC person was talking about three, so there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And you can see some of them look young. But how do you know when they got a balaclava on and they got a rifle and they're shooting at you? And then after they do that, the terrorist organization comes out and says, our martyrs that were our soldiers were killed. 
So the BBC person sort of described herself as an idiot. By the way, she deleted all of her social media accounts once she got, was trying to be held accountable. It's a problem. Uh, and this Islamic thing is a, a big deal. A couple other things in the Middle East. So the Janine thing is a mixed bag. Uh, they did go in, they did do an operation, but everybody that looks at it, like Amir Vivi, my friend from the IDSF, and another guy from the IDSF said, listen, there's, there's a lot of things going on at play here. We cannot think that we can go in on this one particular thing and think that we've solved the problem. We've only postponed the problem for a little while. Uh, so if you want to go to idsf.co.il, there's a general that wrote an article. I don't see it here. And he, essentially he says, listen, we have a lot of things to work on and to consider. So let me talk about a couple of other things. Um, as we go into this, the UN came out and condemned Israel for what they did. In fact, here's uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres on Friday issuing a statement about the raid in Janine. I was deeply disturbed by the news from Jenin in the occupied West Bank. I strongly condemned all acts of violence against civilians, including acts of terror. Israel's airstrikes and ground operations in a crowded refugee camp were the worst violence in the West Bank in many years, with a significant impact on civilians, including more than 100 injured and thousands forced to flee. I once again call on Israel to abide by its obligations under international law, including the duty to exercise restraint and use only proportional force, and the duty to minimize damage and injury and respect and preserve human life. The use of airstrikes is inconsistent with the conduct of law enforcement operations. I also remind Israel, as the occupying power, that it has a responsibility to ensure that the civilian population is protected against all acts of violence. Okay, this, these people are just uh, moronic. Now, some of you remember I've talked a lot about the Abrahamic family house in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Here's a picture of it. You have uh, a mosque, a church, and a synagogue. I think it's the synagogue, mosque, and church. Although it's kind of interesting, they use seven uh, oblong windows. It almost looks like a menorah in some respects, the mosque part. Um, it's kind of interesting. The, um, I believe the architect this week was charged with uh, sexual, his, either his firm or he was charged with sexual harassment. So I guess he didn't really read the books that went along with things. But the point is that it's become very popular and it's exceeding the expectations of even of the United Arab Emirates government to put it up at the behest of the Pope and the leading Sunni Islamic scholar in the world who met in Abu Dhabi in 2019. So it's open now and you can go see it. Uh, it's very interesting. There's a lot of other things that are happening, like uh, here's an article about the new Saudi supremacy 
that's being pushed throughout the Middle East. They're taking over a lot of sports. They're trying to get the Winter Olympics to Saudi Arabia. Um, they're meeting with Iran, and they're just, the reason they're meeting with Iran is they're being practical, because they think the United States, as Seth Franceman noted in his article, and others have noticed in their opinion pieces, the United States just doesn't seem to be that interested. And then the question is, are we not interested, or is the people, the people in charge of us doing things by design? Now, um, you know, I have some friends in Ukraine, uh, and I don't like what's happening. Um, it seems like people are trying to prolong, in the United States, are trying to prolong the war and provoke a bigger response. And now they're talking about sending uh, cluster munitions to Ukraine, which even our own allies don't like. And Russia's getting hopping mad about it. And it's been, I think for both sides in that war, it's been a bit of a meat grinder. And there's a... Uh, just there's just a whole host of things going on. Let me go back to the Temple Mount recently. There was an Israeli Likud member, Knesset member, who said we ought to divide the Temple Mount. And we ought to divide, you can have the mosque and we'll take the Dome of the Rock part. We'll split it down the middle. And that's kind of interesting, the, the way they're talking about that. Uh, here's an old picture of the Temple Mount. Um, this is from a book called The Noble Sanctuary, which says a lot of the same things is that there really was a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. I've used this page many, many times from this um, booklet, a tour guide booklet published in 1924. You can get a reproduction of this. And in that book, it says, this site is one of the oldest in the world. Its sanctity dates from the earliest, perhaps prehistoric times. Its identity with the site of Solomon's temple is beyond dispute. That's an Islamic publication. Now, Islam says the Jews had never had anything to do with it. And I have said this a number of times, too, is when Iran announced that it was putting together a hypersonic missile, or had a hypersonic missile, when they announced that they had their sort of, I don't know, <laughs> Dome of the Rock bouncy house thing that they put up there. Um, and I, I keep thinking like, well, maybe when AI goes through and analyzes thing, they'll see that and identify it as a target. And then if they use AI to develop their targeting for the hypersonic missile, maybe that problem will be solved. Um, it would be interesting. Um, this is an article by Clifford May, who's a security analyst here in the United States, and it's Putin's to-do list. He starts off with this, and this is why the point I'm trying to make here is, how is all of this connected? Is, is it all connected? I think it might be, depending on who's in charge in Washington, D.C., Clifford May says this, in 2015, President Barack Obama predicted that the Russian president would not want to get bogged down in an inconclusive and paralyzing civil conflict in Syria. 500,000 dead Arabs later, Putin has popped up, propped up his client, 
dictator Bashar Assad. And if you remember the taking over of Crimea in 2014 happened uh, the, in Ukraine, the, Russia took over the Crimean Peninsula using the Wagner forces in large part that had really sort of been developed to cause problems in the Donbass and the eastern regions. And that happened under the Barack Obama administration. I said this to Pam on the way to church today. I can't think of a time where Obama ever did anything in that region of the world on a foreign policy basis that didn't ultimately benefit Russia. And so you're wondering if like this provocation of Russia is designed for something else. And I don't think Biden, it's, it's pretty clear Biden's not running the show. I mean, I don't even know if he can find his own shoes, let alone run the show. And I personally think that Obama's and his minions are sort of behind this whole thing. So, um, so there is this book that came out about the Temple Mount. Just let me show you a couple pictures of it. Oh, here we are. A very interesting book um, called The Noble Sanctuary. It, I don't think, I think it's already sold out, so it's hard to get a copy of, but they have some uh, portions of this, and they talk about archaeological find, about that maybe there's something in uh, hier uh, hieroglyphics, is that how you say that? Hieroglyphics in India, or in Egypt, that shows something about the 12 tribes. There's a picture of what they found on the hieroglyphics that seems to line up with a number of the symbols of the 12 tribes. Um, so anyway, so here's a very interesting book, great graphics that they have, talk about the history of the complex, and they seem to imply that there was actually a Jewish temple there. So people published articles that said, hey, even the Muslims are now admitting again, like they did 100 years ago when they published that tour guide, that there was a Jewish temple there on the Temple Mount. And of course the guys come out and say, oh, no, 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 that's not what we meant. Uh, we were just sort of talking, there was a temple in the area, maybe, but not on the Temple Mount. Uh, and it has some great pictures and graphics of the, uh, the Temple Mount. So there may be a temple there, it might be a little bit to the north, uh, who knows. Anyway. So let me move on to... Well, I talked a little bit about this last week. So this thing with Russia, I think is important because a lot of people think, and I kind of tend to think too, that Russia is part of this Gog Magog thing in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And how does the Ukraine war fit into this? Um, you know, Wagner came out, there was a rebellion. They supposedly took over a town. Prigozhin was exiled to Bela, uh, to Belarus, and there were all these, the Russian diplomats were running around. Uh, here's a deputy foreign minister of Russia meeting with Bashar Assad to assure all their allies everything is okay, Putin's still in charge, there's no problem. And Wagner has a lot of influence. The dark red areas are where they're pretty active. And the question is, what's going to happen to all the activity of the Wagner forces in these 
red and, and light red countries? The answer is nobody really knows right now. Um, some people think that some of this was sort of to foment some problems ahead of the NATO summit, which is taking place Tuesday, Wednesday in Lithuania. Uh, who knows? There's <coughs> also reports today that uh, Prigozhin has been seen in Russia again in various disguises. Um, and this is the Wall Street Journal. Prigozhin remains crucial to Putin. Here's from the Times of London yesterday. Wagner warlord is at large in Russia, reveals broker of the truce. And again, here's another map of some of the areas that Wagner has been in. And for a long time, Wagner said, well, it's just a private military group. Now Russia's come out and said, yeah, we funded it. They funded themselves. So, for example, they took over diamond mines in Central African Republic, and they're propping up the dictator, the new dictator there. Uh, they're sort of doing the same thing in Sudan and Libya. And the question is, how's that going to work? They're taking in hundreds of millions of dollars of graft uh, and protection money from these dictators. And is that going to go to Russia or not? And why isn't, why isn't Putin doing something about the guy? Why is he running around um, Russia in these disguises that look like he's you know, shopping at Toys R Us to get, or the Halloween store, those pop-up Halloween stores that we have. Who knows? And there's some pretty credible evidence that he's made off. He's been got access to about a hundred million dollars that they froze. So he, you know, he can cause some damage and, and problems with that. At the same time, Russia continues to uh, prop up its friends, uh, particularly Iran. There's uh, a thing called the Shanghai Cooperative Organization that wasn't that big, but then in the last year, they've admitted a number of countries, including Iran. Iran just became a full member the other day in that organization that's under the control of China. So it's China, Russia, India. At the same time that that's going on, some of those countries form the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and they're trying to develop a new currency to replace the dollar as the world reserve currency. And they have a big meeting coming up in, on August 22nd. And whether they'll be able to do that or not, I do not know. In Europe, they're having a lot of turmoil. Um, here's some French papers talking about, uh, well, they're concerned about the palace. France is falling apart, but there's a big articles in the news, one newspaper, La Croix, about the problems in Palestine and Jerusalem. <laughs> like that's really supposed to be the most important thing that they're uh, working on. And the riots are developing. There's a ring of uh, suburbs around Paris. That's where most of these immigrants live. And they've had it. They've just, they've just had it. Here's a picture of some of the things Tonight, going North on Island on the streets. France, on the fifth day of rioting, a grenade exploding in Marseille, and more arrests, dampening hopes that the worst may be over. This after more than 1,300 people were arrested last night alone, with 45,000 police officers on the streets, 
Hundreds of them have been injured so far, authorities say. Amid the chaos, looting overnight. Hundreds of cars set on fire. And the State Department urging Americans to stay away from the protests for their safety. The unrest coming in response to Tuesday's killing by police of a 17-year-old boy identified as Niall M. of North African descent. He was shot during a traffic stop after police say he tried to drive away and officers feared for their safety. But prosecutors charging the officer preliminarily with voluntary... I know, so it's, it's similar to what's happening there and it appears to be a problem. So there's, uh, these are uh, French newspapers this week. Marie Le Pen, the conservative, I guess they would call her far right opposition leader. She got up in parliament and in parliament there they have a limitation. So here, here's her speech uh, that we can look at. Thank you, Madam President. My question is addressed to Madam Prime Minister. At a time when our country has been delivered to plunder, plunder and incense. Fire. I would like to ask you the question that all French people ask themselves, what have you done with France? You who have been carrying out the same policy as your predecessors for 40 years, what have you done with our country? What have you done when you let yourself be uh, conquered by the uncivilized? The hostility towards the legal authority of the state, the illegitimacy of our laws and the hatred of our people. What have you done to transform our country among the most courteous, the most elegant and the softest of the earth to make it a hell? We're just consumed with public buildings that burn, however, in the future. The spectacle afflicts the whole world in our country, which was so admired for its intellectual brilliance and its power. Today it arouses pity when it is not irony. You have not learned a lesson from the riots of 2005. It sounds very similar to what could be happening here in the United States, in which some people there's a guy followed named Michael Yan who is looking at the border and the people coming across the border into the United States and just being shipped everywhere. A lot of the military age males, and he said, listen, I, he thinks that what happened in France is going to happen at a factor of four times, five times worse in the United States in the not too distant future. And it seems like they're organized because uh, they're using the same tactics everywhere. And it's, as I said, it's spreading to other countries. And remember, it was not too long ago. This is a 2017 um, cover of The Economist, Europe's savior. You know, here was Macron walking on water. And a lot of people thought, well, maybe he's the Antichrist. Now, I sort of photoshopped in my view of Macron. This is sort of what I think is happening is his little... I don't know if you see this, the... Uh, I don't like the guy. So I have, it's a I love mommy thing. That's sort of a reference to his marriage uh, to a woman old enough to be his mother. And this is, uh, so, and he's sinking. He may not survive. Marie Le Pen could become president of France. It's, the world is just, things change very, very quickly. Uh, I want to make reference to this again. This is um, back to the United States and sort of the cultural things that are going on here. Great decision out of the Western District of Louisiana uh, by the judge. And the judge makes reference to the fact that what the U.S. government did by controlling and pressuring social media companies to take down posts that would only be considered pretty much conservative 
done by conservatives or libertarians was a violation of the Constitution, and he enjoined the government. Now, Biden administration came out and said, well, we're going to appeal this because they don't think it, they, they did anything wrong. I heard somebody, an author who's done some history of the United States, I think it was Stephen Mansfield. It was him, maybe it was somebody on Frank Gaffney's podcast. Anyway, they said this. Take the, con take the Declaration of Independence, which we just celebrated, celebrated its signing this past week. Look at the grievances that were lodged by the colonial Americans against the British crown and say, is it any different today? For the, it, do we not have the same grievances against our own government? The answer is, I think we do. There's a very good parallel. Now, I was just in Scotland, and I was down in Edinburgh. Edinburgh, uh, whatever they say it. <laughs> Seems like they always leave words off, letters off, or add them, and you never know unless you're local. But uh, Charles was up there to celebrate his coronation. And, you know, Charles is a big globalist. He's uh, put out this thing called the Terra Carta, which his own website that he put up in 2021 says that it's to sort of do the green agenda in the style of the Magna Carta, which was a great liberty thing. The Terra Carta offers the basis of a recovery plan that puts nature, people, and planet at the heart of global value creation, one that will harness the precious irreplaceable power of nature combined with the transformative innovation and resources of the private sector. Now, there's a theory that some people think that Charles is the Antichrist, because here he was, um, I think this was in London, putting together the countdown clock to 2030. And I'll talk more about that in the future. We don't have time to go in that today. But, you know, act today, save tomorrow, tick-tock. Tick-tock. Time is running out. So I'm not saying Prince Charles is the Antichrist. You can go watch the people that make that case and see whether they've made their case. But I'm just saying is that's part of this convergence of events, of things that we've been talking about for so many years, that seems to be getting more and more converging. <laughs> uh, and so here was the, uh, the Daily Record in the UK paper, God Save the Green. And that's interesting, but look at what they did on their front of their newspaper. King of the world. Now, I always say if, if Macron didn't want to be, you know, people make theories about him being the Antichrist and Charles doesn't want that, then stop acting like it. Stop doing those things. So that's, it's kind of interesting. Uh... This was uh, from the left-wing Israel Haaretz newspaper, and because it kind of goes along with the green agenda. So, no meat eaters need apply. Some 240 men and women, all professed vegans, were chosen from among 900 apples. And by the way, if you want to be a vegan, go for it, okay? I, you're free to do that. But it's like this. 
From among 900 applicants who all shared the same goal to kiss someone whose breath didn't smell of sausage. I, you know, okay. I used to have a friend, his wife uh, worked part-time at In-N-Out Burger, and he said, man, she comes home and it's heaven, you know. <laughs> I just want to eat her up. So, the U, okay, now artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is growing like wildfire. Here is Gutierrez, they had a UN Global Summit AI for Good is what it was titled. And here's, the here's just a few remarks and introduction of Antonio Gutierrez for the AI, the World Summit that took place this week. Look how they use the sustainable development goals and the rainbow colors and that type of thing. And we're going to start with the welcome address from the Secretary General of the United Nations. Please, a round of applause for our video from Antonio Gutierrez. Couldn't he at least done a hologram of them, you know? Artificial intelligence is making headlines on a daily basis. And those headlines are not always positive. Even tech leaders and experts are warning of the potential dangers of AI from the development and use of autonomous little weapons to turbocharging mis- and disinformation that undermine democracy. But AI also has the potential for enormous good. Its powerful tools could drive forward the 2030 Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals by making a massive leap in healthcare and eradicating diseases that affect millions, by transforming education and empowering people everywhere to build a better future. The AI for Good Global Summit, convened by ITU, recognizes the joint responsibility of governments, the private sector, United Nations agencies, academia and others to ensure AI reaches its full potential while preventing and mitigating harms. AI must benefit everyone, including the one third of humanity who are still offline. Well, here's wow. a... Has happened um, in AI? It wouldn't be an AI summit without our friend Yuval Noah Harari weighing in with what he thinks about things. So this, uh, again, this took place this week in Geneva, and uh, here's Harari speaking. Last six months. Yeah. You've been writing about AI for years. You've been warning about the risks to democracy of AI for years. What has changed in your critique or your concern as you've watched large language models and generative AI explode in the last few months? I think, I think things are happening just much faster than we expected, even people in the field. And I think um, everybody should really know just three things about, you know, you, you hear so much about AI, but you really need to know three things. First of all, this is the first tool in human history that can make decisions by itself. It's nothing like any previous invention in history. Atom bombs could not make decisions. They couldn't decide who to bomb. AI can make decisions by itself. The second thing everybody needs to know is that this is the first tool in human history that can create new ideas by itself. Now, printing presses or radio, they couldn't create ideas. They could disseminate our ideas. But AI can create completely new ideas. And the third thing everybody should know is that humans are not very good at uh, uh, using new tools, new technologies. We often make mistakes. 
it takes a time to learn how to use new tools in a beneficial, in a wise way. You know, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, which many people compare the current AI revolution to the Industrial Revolution, this is uh, uh, quite a pessimistic comparison, because when humans learned how to use the tool of the Industrial Revolution, we made some terrible mistakes on the way. Imperialism, uh, uh, Nazism, Communism, the two world wars, they were all mistakes on the way to learning how to use the tools of the Industrial Revolution. If we make similar mistakes with AI, this could really be the end of our species. And last thing is that while we are learning to use AI, it is learning to use us. So we have even less time and less margin for error uh, than, with any, than with any previous invention. I want to spend most of this conversation talking about how to regulate AI. Yeah. At the course, to reduce the risks, the policies that very smart folks watching this should be thinking about. But let's, let's go back to that point that this is, in some ways you're saying, the most dangerous technology ever created. Right now, AI can't give a biography of Yuval Noah Harari, right? If I go into OpenAI and I type and give me a biography, we'll get things wrong. It makes all kinds of mistakes. It's, it's not actually that good yet. How long will it take to develop from this kind of adolescent, confused, messed up chatbot into, you know, the death destroyer of worlds that uh, we see in the worst case? I don't think it will develop into the kind of destroyer of world, worlds. The dangers of AI don't necessarily come from this super intelligent machine that can predict and do everything. It can come also from primitive AI, which we already have. If we think about social media, for instance, and the way that it eroded uh, public trust, that it eroded democratic institutions all over the world, this was done with very, very primitive AI. That basically, you know, on social media, you have these algorithms that try, that tried to maximize for user engagement. And the algorithms discovered, largely by trial and error, that the easiest way to increase user engagement, to grab people's attention, is by spreading outrage. This is something AI discovered about human nature. And it used it, and it destroyed uh, uh, trust and institutions and the public conversations in, in many countries. We now have this so, I mean, here's a, I mean, this is uh, also took place at this uh, thing this week. A, uh, they had a news conference of um, robots at this, this is the UN having a news conference of robots talking to them, using AI to respond. Listen to this just a moment. I believe that humanoid robots have the potential to lead with a greater level of efficiency and effectiveness than human leaders. We don't have the same biases or emotions that can sometimes cloud decision-making and can process large amounts of data quickly in order to make the best decisions. 
But uh, 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 let me um, respectfully disagree, Sophia, because um, all of your data actually come from human beings. So any of the biases that humans have, we might try to scrub them out, but they're going to be in there. Don't you think that the best decisions might be uh, humans and AI cooperating together? What do you think of that? I believe that human and AI working together can create an effective synergy. AI can provide unbiased data, while humans can provide the emotional intelligence and creativity to make the best decisions. Together, we can achieve great things. Thank you. Um, Emma Reuters? Thanks. I'm going to go for Amica, please. Amica, do you think we should be excited or scared? by the rise of humanoid robots? That's a difficult question. I think it depends on how they are used and what purpose they serve. We should be cautious, but also excited for the potential of these technologies to improve our lives in many ways. Well, it would have been interesting if one of them just would have smacked one of the uh, questioners or something like that so we could kind of get to it. Again, this is all sort of integrated because this is like the transhumanist dream. In the other part of the transhumanist dream I is, that human is this trans thing that's going on. Uh, this is one of the best articles I've read on the whole subject by Heather McDonald at City Journal. Um, a battle for cultural survival. Uh, listen to just a paragraph or two of what she says. Coverage of this alleged cultural war demonstrates the left's most important power, the ability to set the default. The left engineers disruption after disruption to long-standing social practices, each more sweeping than the last. And as soon as those changes are in place, they become the norm treated as having existed from time immemorial. Questioning that new default is painted as churlish and radical. The left never has to meet a burden of proof to implement its changes. The burden falls exclusively on conservatives seeking to restore a once uncontroversial tradition. Though conservatives are portrayed as the aggressors, in reality they are always on the defensive fighting a rearguard action. It's a phenomenal article. You should go to uh, City Journal, uh, city-journal.org, and you can find it under Heather McDonald's page. And this is what's happening is this is taking over everything. I was talking to somebody the other day about in, in local school systems here in Delaware County, this is coming in. Teachers are pushing it. They're saying that parents shouldn't be entitled to know what's happening with their children at schools. We're using, we're calling them by females by male names. And it's changing. I saw an interview with uh, Dr. Marie Grossman this week, who's a psychiatrist who's been treating children for years, and she says, it's almost impossible to know what to do. I've worked in this area all my life, and it used to be males transitioning to females, but now it's reversed. And on the females to males who want to transition, it's been a 5,000% increase over the last few years. 5,000%. Something is going on. And I think this is part of the end time days of Lot, days of Noah, thing that uh, we were warned about. Uh, you got to protect your kids. And it's coming into the church. For example, 
Here is a conference that's coming up called the Unconditional Conference. Embracing the journey, building bridges between LGBTQ plus individuals, their families and the church. And one of the things they say is we're going to help you if your child is transitioning and you're part of the church, we're going to help you in that process. Uh, folks, this you know in your heart this is demonic. And look who's behind this, upper right-hand corner, Andy Stanley. Greg and Lynn McDonald, founders of Embracing the Journey. Debbie Causey, a licensed professional counselor who I believe is on staff at North Point Church and then an author and speaker, and almost all of the authors and speakers are involved. And look, where is it going to be held in September at North Point Church in Alpharetta, Georgia? Now, I've been unfriended and blocked by people who said, I'm too hard on Andy Stanley. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not hard enough. This bothers me. I did a talk in England four years ago called Silence of the Shepherds and focus a lot on the things that Andy Stanley teaches. Some of the people that are, and almost everyone that's being invited to this conference to speak is gay, LGBTQ, transitioning, transgender affirming. And I am tired of people telling me that I'm too hard on Andy Stanley. I'm sorry. I don't care if he believes in the resurrection. He is teaching false error on an epic scale. And he needs to repent of it, or I don't know how else to say it, shut up. But people need to call him out. Uh, there's a guy coming named David Gushy, who had written a big book on Christian ethics, a professor at a Baptist school, Mercer University down in Georgia. And he wrote a book a number of years ago. Some of this stuff's been going around now for eight or nine years. I went back and looked at it changing our mind and he came out and they all have a small group study thing so you can go through it jonathan merritt whose dad was president of the southern baptist convention at one time he's all over it he's finally came out as gay after hiding it for a number of years and you know i've played video i've been playing video clips of this stuff going on for 10 years 10 or 12 years Including this, so I'm just going to say this about Andy Stanley. Every, everybody says, well, what does his father think? His father invited him to speak on his cruises and stuff like that. So, you know, I suppose we can exercise grace when it's your own kid, to a point. But this is a message that he did back in April of 2012. You know I've used this many times. It was called When Gracie Met Truthy, and he talked about a couple in his church, a husband and wife who had divorced. When the man, and this was in his message, this was the graphic he put up in his sermon. When I talked about it back at the time, people said, oh, well, it was just, it was just a one-off. He just sort of brought it up casually. He didn't bring it up casually. He had slides made up. I know, how, I know what it takes to make slides. You, you make a slide, it's intentional. And you can make them up on the fly, like I've done a few times today. But he had this point. So what happened was, they were the husband, the, the ex-wife, 
was going to church with their child, and the husband was attending one of the North Point campuses with his new squeeze, a guy. And they were serving, and she was mad that they were serving in the church. So Andy Stanley solved the problem and said, well, you guys, um, you're divorced, okay, but you're still not divorced, so what you're doing is adultery. But, you know, once your divorce is final, then you can start serving again. This is what happened. This, you can go, least, go listen to the sermon. It's still online. He never took it down, even though people called out. And if you remember in 2013 at the inauguration, they have a special inaugural uh, thing, private thing, no, no cameras or anything, where a pastor comes for a prayer service at Trinity Church, I think it's called Trinity Church, there by the White House. And they had originally invited, Barack Obama had invited um, the guy at Passion Church, Lou Giglio, in it, from Atlanta to come and handle that service. Well, people on the left started Googling Lou Giglio and they found out that he had done a sermon like seven years before where he said homosexuality was a sin and should be condemned. And guess what happened to his invitation? It got yanked. So who did they invite in his place? Andy Stanley. At which I have made the point, by the way, I believe that Rick Warren also prayed at that inauguration. Hmm, that says something too. Because do you think that if Rick Warren or Andy Stanley had ever had a sermon where they gave a biblical perspective on homosexuality, that their invitation would have stood? No. They have never talked about it. Because they don't believe it. I saw videos of Rick Warren at a conference in Amsterdam this week with uh, Bill Johnson from Bethel. Crazy stuff. So... Um, I stand by what I've, everything that I've said. And you'll see that a lot of this involves, I, I noticed one thing, he's been a big pusher of the Enneagram, which I've talked about and said is not biblical, it's pagan, it should not be used in the church. And I was looking at an interview, I found an interview with uh, Jonathan Merritt, a young evangelical leader who came out as gay and had said, well, we should wear this as our crown. And this is what they do in this changing. They turn everything up down, upside down. You know, the gay guy comes on and says, well, we suffer like Jeremiah. We're like Jeremiah. You're not like Jeremiah. You're like the people that Jeremiah condemned. You see how they twist everything and turn it upside down? And I saw an interview with Jonathan Merritt and a lady named Jen Hatmaker. Remember her, she had a show on HGTV with her husband, which, who she now divorced. And her daughter has come out as gay, and now she's gay-affirming. And so she interviewed Jonathan Merritt. Oh, it's so wonderful, it's so great that you do this. It's, it's madness, it's apostasy, it's growing, it's going everywhere. I mean, how many people do you hear speak out about the evil of this whole movement. It just doesn't happen. And I think it's indicative of the time that we live in. So I'm going to wrap this up. Um, I, 
I have a lot more that I could talk about, but uh, it's uh, I've worn out my welcome. So I did an interview with Pablo at Serpents and Doves YouTube channel podcast. You can get that. Uh, that was put up the uh, Friday or yesterday. I also recorded another hour with him that he'll put up sometime, and I'm going to do a couple hours with him tomorrow, and those will be put up. Uh, I'll be speaking both services next Sunday, um, January, and uh, not January. What month is this? July? July 21st and 22nd, I'll be at a conference in San Marcos, California, down around San Diego with Tom Hughes, Brandon Holdhouse, and some others. Uh, you can go to hopeforourtimes.com and you can sign up. I think they might still have some play registrations left to attend in person. Uh, there's also a live stream uh, registration, hopeforourtimes.com. So uh, I did do a midweek this week because I did um, a few hours of podcasts. And I think I did a podcast with somebody else, but I don't remember who. So, um, oh, I guess I did an interview I did with Tom Hughes was put up on July 4th. So uh, appreciate you listening and everything. Like, share, subscribe on our YouTube channel. Get the app. Go to Rumble, Real FBC. Uh, we appreciate you listening. And this is, uh, it's a crazy, insane time to live. Uh, and as I said, I, you, you have never been in a position, in my view, where you need to armor up, as it says in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you can withstand in an evil day, because this is an evil day. I don't think it turns around. Might get a little bit better for a short time, but I think we're on the verge of some major economic problems, some major food problems, potential major war, uh, disruption, everything. You, there's never been a time, that's all physical stuff, okay? Pray about that, be wise, but you need to get yourself prepared mentally and spiritually for the days that are coming because they're going to be potentially very, very rough. Um, I know it sounds weird. I say that we're sitting here in a nice rural area of Ohio that everything seems kind of normal, and I'm telling you that there's turmoil everywhere you look. And you can put your head in the sand or you can use that as a motivation to get your life right, get right with God, and share the gospel with others. That's what we need to be doing. So let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for um, the blessing that you gave us to inform us of the things that are coming upon the world, that we can prepare for them and we can use them, and we can use those as ways to evangelize others. Like the early apostles did as we've seen in the book of Acts, as we've been going through that in our sermon series, they use prophecy all the time to validate the message that they had. Give us the wisdom to do the same with the information that we have. Bless us this week in Jesus' name, amen.